little bit more clarity regarding the 110 intensive because ultimately what I'm going to do is if you're new here um, today, today's message really, or ultimately testimony, will give you um, a lot of understanding regarding kind of our founding of who we are, um, but also where we're going. Um, and if you're not new here, if this is your home, this is really history that you should know and be very familiar. I'm just going to take a moment and ask Will if, if I need to do something differently with the microphone. Do I? Okay. Up higher? You want me higher? Okay. Better turn it down. Turn it down. Because <laughs> I'm super loud. Um, okay. I will follow your cues, my friend. Um, so, yeah, it'll give you... You know, actually, I love... Their, uh, Allegra Fletcher was leading the Tuesday night set this last week. The house of prayer was filled with people that I've never met. A young man came from Williams College. He does campus ministry there. But I loved, actually... She has such familiarity with our history and ultimately how God planted us that she was kind of able to give that group of people an introduction and context and understanding, um, which is wonderful if this is your home and, and this is your family here. Um, so I'm going to start by just sharing a brief testimony. When I was 16 years old, um, if you know me, I was not an ordinary 16-year-old. I, I really loved Jesus at a very early age, had a radical conversion. And when I say radical conversion, conversion as a small child, I was, when I say tormented by fear, you have no understanding of what I was like as a kid. My whole body would get covered with hives. Um, I was terrorized. Part of it was because I, I definitely was seeing things legitimately spiritually. Um, I would identify certain things in our house, and then strangely, people that used to live there would come and tell us and identify those exact events. Um, so heightened spiritual awareness that really opened up the door to a lot of torment and fear. My mother taught me how to walk it out and how to navigate it and how to overcome fear, but I can honestly say I was delivered from a spirit of fear at a very young age. Um, I can also tell you that um, from that point on, I definitely did not struggle with fear. If anything, I probably have a little too much boldness. <laughs> I kind of went the opposite extreme. Uh, whom the Lord, uh, who the sun sets free is free indeed. So for, so for me, I encountered the Lord. He was very real to me from a young age. So I had the privilege of going to a private Christian high school. And in that high school, I got to study the revival history of New England. But even more specifically, I got to study um, the spiritual history or the founding of America from a Christian perspective. And so I want to encourage you, if you don't know the, the history of America, or if you've only been taught it through one lens, you really should research out other perspectives and other historians. Um, Paul Jaley is wonderful in giving insight into this, which we'll see him at the 110 Intensive. But I want to encourage every person here, you should read The Light and the Glory by David um, Manuel and Peter Marshall. And it was at that point in time that as I was studying history as a, a young teenager, that I became keenly aware, and I'll tell you some of the specific documents that really, um, and I don't have time today to go into great detail, but it was actually when I was reading uh, The Model for Christian Charity. Has anybody ever read it? It's what uh, Governor Winthrop wrote when he was aboard the Arabella and when they were coming ultimately to Boston. And so he was kind of setting out this model for what they are called to be and what they are called to do. And so I'm reading documents like that. I'm reading uh, Jonathan Edwards 
Edwards out of all of the revivalists that's really who provoked my heart and I'm reading something he wrote called A Humble Attempt and in it he's basically saying that he has this vision of seeing an extraordinary move of prayer come out of New England that would bring the gospel to the nations of the earth. That the, 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 the every nation, tribe and tongue would hear of Jesus Christ because of a movement of prayer that would come out of New England. So as I'm reading these kind of things, I am realizing that there's a, a prophetic lens or even vision that God gave to men and women that has not yet been realized. It's vision that God struck their hearts, and it's primarily why they founded the new world, but yet those visions have not been realized and actualized. And so as a young teenager, my heart began to burn with, I want to see those dreams come to pass. It was like a window. This is a window into God's heart, and I want to see these things come to pass, because ultimately, if it's God that impregnates vision in, in, in the heart of a man and a woman, and some of you could be like, well, what if the model for Christian char- charity was not God-breathed? Well, let me ask you this. When you read the model for Christian charity, number one, he's quoting scripture very, very explicitly, but he also calls for Matthew 5.14. He ultimately says, we are called to be a city set upon a hill and a light to all nations. And it's not just his documentation, it's all laced throughout our history. When you read it, it's the understanding that Boston was founded to be a stepping stone for the gospel to the nations of the earth. You know, I want to say something else to you, is that if they were coming for their own vain imaginations or their own uh, desires or purposes or intents, can I just say to you, two-thirds of those that came aboard the Arabella, they died within the first six months. Just get a visual before we move forward. I mean, this topic alone, I feel like could be preached endlessly, is this understanding of what it is to give your life for something greater. That these people that came, can you imagine the harsh, cold winters of New England and there had not been already housing established. There had not been farms developed. There was no food source. They literally came with whatever was aboard aboard the ship. And by the time they arrived, it was like potatoes and onions that was left. Now, what would we do if we went to a land that had not been developed, there was no resources, no shelter? Have you ever, have you guys been here for a New England winter? It's freezing. Most of us don't even want to just take public transportation in the wintertime. We all want to Uber because it's too cold to walk. But yet these individuals had no homes to keep warm in. They had to do all of this. And can I just say this to you? The hardship that they endured, we are all reaping the benefits of a very, very, very small company of people. A very small company of people that burned with a divine vision. They burned with a vision, and the extraordinary thing is that they were not considering their comfort. They were not considering their ease. They were plagued with disease, but they were willing to give their lives in such a manner for the sake of their posterity. They had a dream for generations behind them. And this is what I'm going to say to you. As we go through even the vision that God's given us here for Boston, we have to be people that dream for the generations that are behind us. If you have a vision that can be accomplished in your lifetime, it probably is not a vision from God. If you have a vision that you can accomplish in your own strength and in your own resource, in your own power and your own ingenuity, you have not yet caught a vision that God has for your life and for the purpose of God for your life. 
And you know, we often despise the day of small beginnings. We do. We despise things that are hard. We despise things that are difficult. We despise things that we have to toil and labor. But can I just say, everything that you are reaping the benefit of today is a small group of people that had the wisdom not to despise their small beginnings, but they gave their lives for a greater vision. I, I hope and I pray that we see a younger generation that, that ca- catches hold of that pioneering spirit of what it means to give our lives, to not live for comfort and ease and expediency. So for me at 16, my one thing when my guidance counselors would ask me, what do you feel like, what do you want to go to school for? What do you want to go to college for? What do you want as your career? My only answer was, I just want to see the dreams of God come to pass for New England. You know, and we all scratched our heads. How do you see that? I don't know. Not sure exactly. (laughs) But can I say something to you? I, in that season in my life, without having very clear direction, I knew the one thing I was called to do was to pray and to fast. That was the only real clarity I had. And you know what? One of the other interesting thing, I had had several people that had given me words about not going to college. That I, that's just not the path for me. I, I celebrate all of you that got to and get to. That's awesome. That was not the path for me to the extent that even at one point, I think I was, um, it was before the call, I think I was 21. Um, when I had taken my entrance exams and I decided to go that process because there was nothing else for me to do and I was like, well, I need a degree. I actually got called out by a prophet and the prophet actually, all they said is, if the Lord said don't go to school, then don't go to school. And I literally went flying back like, like five feet. Like it was like a force just hit me kind of like, oh, I'm disobeying. <laughs> and you know, that's the thing is we do not understand the beginning from the end. All we get to do is really trust and obey. How many of you guys know that old song, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey? It's so simple. But in all of our intelligence, we want it to be so complex and so grand, don't we? We don't want to trust and obey. So for me, I was kind of led on a journey that... um, as, as I said, my big dream was I want to see God's dream for New England come to pass. And so around the age of 22, um, Daryl and I were actually friends. At that point, we weren't dating or anything like that. I actually think to some degree we might have been rivals at that point. Um, story for another day, I got him kicked out of our Christian high school. We went to high school together. He got kicked out. I was like the leader of the Jesus Club, and he was the leader of the rebels. <laughs> and there was a great confrontation. <laughs> Um, but at this point in time, he was leading worship. I was leading prayer. We were like doing youth ministry and things like that. And basically the opportunity came about for us to host Lou Engel. And at that time, he was not really well known. The call had not happened yet. Um, but what we did know of him is that, um, we were at the Toronto airport vineyard. It's when the outpouring was happening there. And he preached a message there when I was 18 years old called the atomic power of prayer and fasting. I don't know if it's available anywhere, but you should look it up. It's called the Atomic Power of Prayer and Fasting. So when I was 18, I did my first 40-day liquid fast because of hearing Lou at this, at this gathering. So we get a, we, somebody contacts us and asks us if we can host him in New England because he's mobilizing to do a massive solemn assembly on the Washington Mall. 
And so, of course, we say, yes, we're happy to. We end up meeting him, being involved with that call. I'm just going to say to this, at that point in time, he pretty much was not a big name. There was 400,000 young people that had gathered on that Washington Mall. It was unbelievable. That's actually conservative numbers. But I can honestly tell you, major leaders in the body of Christ, because his time frame for mobilizing was short. He didn't have the finances. He didn't have the resources. All of those things. Every single leader in the body of Christ said, this is crazy. You're going to lose money, and it won't be a success. You should postpone this. But he had a word from God, so in 2000, he did the gathering. And it was so small organizationally. I'll just say it this way. The calls have greatly advanced. Now I get, like, speaker packets two weeks in advance with itineraries and pickup and drop-off and meetings. Like, it's so organized. Back then, it was a handful of us that sat on the Washington Mall with Lou. He basically said, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. (laughs) I have a loose schedule. We're just going to follow the Lord. Um, It was just so rough and ready, but he was trusting and obeying. 400,000 people gathered at the Washington Mall, and what happened was is after that, he had had a word about the call, and so he actually wanted to bring the call to New England. So he ended up contacting us. So this was um, 2001. He contacted us about being involved with a team of people to do the call here in New England. Now, if you guys can picture Government Center, do you guys know where Government Center is? Um, That is actually where the call was held. And at that point in time, it was actually um, 9-11 had just happened, and the the pilots flew out of Boston. And so it was 9-11 happened out of Boston, and it was 9-22 that the gathering was supposed to take place. So it was like 11 days later. Again, leaders in the body of Christ are saying, you're being reckless if you gather. This Muslim attack just took place. If you gather a massive assembly of Christians in a public place like that, you are being reckless, and you need to cancel this. And they gave him all the words of caution of why he shouldn't do it. He had a very strong word that basically if we do not continue, then we've completely yielded and we've given up. And so he called for it. 40 thousand people. I don't know how many of you have been in New England very long. That is historical that a New England gathering, especially because we all, uh, New England, our our idol is uh, (laughs) self-preservation. So the fact that people actually gathered when there was major warnings that people were giving that it was dangerous and that we shouldn't gather there. So that was September 20... um, 22nd of 2001. And so basically at that point in time, my role in that call, that call was Lou asked me basically to, and he, did, I mean, he really does not know the intricacies of my testimony or things that God had spoken to me. So his main thing was he wanted me to uh, pray Jonathan Edwards' humble attempt. And he wanted me to specifically pray that there would be an extraordinary move of, of prayer that would bring the gospel to the nations of the earth. And so basically what we were doing is taking Jonathan Edwards' vision that God gave him, and we were covenanting ourselves to see his vision come to pass. And so for me, obviously, that was a very historic moment because since the time I was very young, a humble attempt had been so key and so instrumental. And so I honestly feel as though what that prayer that day there was a place where my heart was really bound to the fulfillment of that, of, of what the vision that God gave Jonathan Edwards. And so we do the call in New England, and it's shortly after that. The call in New England, basically every call that took place, um, Lou would almost have like three or four 
prayer points or prayer targets that we were focused on. And for the Call New England, it was the redigging of the wells of revival. If you don't know, if you're new to New England, there's extraordinary revival history here. You should explore that. Um, Two, it was praying for the college campuses of the Northeast. Um, And if you don't know, um, the Ivy League universities, they have a very, very rich spiritual history that their intended purpose is one of righteousness and for the spreading of the gospel. Um, Three, for another student volunteer missions movement. Some of these words and language might be new to you, um, but ultimately the student volunteer missions movement was born out of Massachusetts. And so he ultimately was praying that we once again from the campuses in the Northeast would see another student volunteer missions movement. So I'm going to be honest with you. In 2001, when these were the things we were praying at the call, I had no heart for college campuses. I I had a heart for revival. That's, That's what I had. That was like the thing I had. But he's talking about student volunteer missions movement. Like 90% of it is kind of going over here for me. But what ends up happening is, is I end up studying the Moravians. For those of you that are not familiar with the Moravians, they're out of Herrenhut, Germany. Um, you should look that up as well. I end up studying the Moravians, and because I was in the House of Prayer movement and I was so for revival, I came to understand that the Moravians were a hundred-year prayer meeting, not a glorious, glamorous prayer meeting. They prayed two by two every hour for a hundred years. And ultimately, from this constituted company of people that were dedicated to the place of prayer, we see the greatest missions movement that the world has ever seen. But also, if you study missions and the missions movements, you can actually trace every subsequent missions movement back. Its roots are back to the Moravians. And so as I'm studying the Moravians, I'm understanding prayer is ultimately unto being missional and the preaching of the gospel in the nations of the earth. I begin to get vision for the nations of the earth. And the more I start studying New England history, revival history, I understand that ultimately this well of revival and awakening, the intended purpose of God is that the nations of the earth would be touched with the glory of God from this place. So as my heart is being stirred for all of this stuff, I happen to stumble upon a vacant college campus. It was very, very close proximity to the town that I was raised in. It's actually, um, when you see the 110 intensive uh, videos and things, it's the campus that it's the aerial of, because that's now where we're gathering. So it's an abandoned college campus. And basically what ends up happening is, is every time I'm driving by this college campus, it's just coming to my attention. I'm just like very aware of kind of like, I knew it had been a liberal arts school. It looked vacant. Like what's going on? Well, you know how many, how when the Lord begins to highlight things like that, for me, I all of a sudden, it starts coming up in my dreams. In my dreams, I'm walking on the campus. I'm inside of buildings. There are very specific um, structures in the buildings that I'm seeing. I'm beginning to dream that it's an all-girls school. I see the girls in their uniforms. I mean, just great detail. So all of a sudden, I'm like, why am I dreaming about this campus? I should probably pay attention to this. As I start researching, I find out that it was an all-girls school, in fact. It's where Anne Hazeltine went to school. For those of you that don't know, Anne Hazeltine married Adoniram Judson, who was the first missionary that the U.S. sent overseas and sent him to Burma, India. 
So as I start researching all of this about this college campus, what I end up discovering is if anybody here has heard of the Haystack Revival out of the Williams College, basically what ends up happening is Williams College, there's a small company of young men that are praying together. It's a prayer meeting. They gather one night, and while they're praying, there's a, a huge thunderstorm that comes, and they have to hide themselves under this haystack, basically, to keep dry. But as they're under the haystack, this is why it's called the Haystack Revival, they have an inbreak of the Holy Spirit. How do you know that if you position yourself in the place of prayer, it will not be long before you have an inbreak of the Holy Spirit? If you need an inbreak of the Holy Spirit, position and posture yourself in the place of prayer. Become a landing strip for him to come and to meet you. So the Holy Spirit breaks in, and guess what? When the Holy Spirit comes, what does he do? He gives these young men a vision for the preaching of the gospel to the nations of the earth. From a small handful of young men in college, God envisions them that the gospel should be preached to the ends of the earth. How many of you guys have that kind of supernatural faith for something? That out of a handful of people, the gospel to be preached to the ends of the earth. Do you know that this group of young men make a pilgrimage to Bradford, Massachusetts, and they basically go to the congregational board there. They pitch their vision to them, basically saying, we need funding, we need a board, we need help to accomplish this. For those of you that have vision, just to give you some perspective, it's a six-year gap from the time that God speaks to them to the time that the board was fully uh, brought together and there was financing and to the sending of Adonai and Judson. It takes six years. That's a big gap. Most of us after year one, oh, I guess I didn't hear from God. Right? Oh, if, well, if God, if you're not going to do something, I don't know, what am I working so hard for? You know, we get all big in our big attitudes of like ultimatums with God and how we should do it in our timing. How about they simply were partnering with the heart of God? God gave them a, gave them a vision. All they had to do was be faithful to steward that vision and the results were up to God. But they were faithful. And so do you know that from that, there was then subsequent missionaries that were sent from that force board of commissioners for foreign missions from Bradford, Massachusetts. It was the financing board of sending. But there was such a move of God upon that campus, the one that we meet on, that ultimately the history book, specifically this one, it says that when you stepped on the campus, it was like stepping under the thunderings of Mount Sinai. The weight of God's glory upon this campus. So you have to know, after I'm reading this information, I'm thinking, okay, God has my attention. What a historic well for revival and missionary sending. And so I begin emailing people like Lou Engle and other people basically, hey, this campus is vacant. <laughs> Somebody needs to do something. Something needs to happen. And, and specifically, the, the, the email copy that I have says, we need to believe for another Moravian lampstand in our generation. So this was 2003. We're praying over this college campus, 2004. Do you want to know something? We prayed over that college campus. So for the next three years, we prayed over it multiple times a week. I won't go into all the details. But ultimately, there was no movement on the campus. Nobody was purchasing it. We were finding the campus was just continually... Um, degenerating. It was, you know, it was being flooded and because there was pipes bursting and all of this stuff. So year after year, we're watching this and we just continue to believe God. 
So basically what ends up happening for me is I end up having multiple words that people end up giving me. Um, first and foremost, I go to, um, I went to Pasadena. Lou was doing uh, kind of a gathering of young adults that were involved with the call, and he was wanting us to move there to start a house of prayer. And so I go out there, and I say very clearly, I cannot move out here. I'm praying over this abandoned college campus. I tell them my whole vision of, like, we need another Moravian lamp stand. We're going to see another student volunteer missions movement. It's going to come out of House of Prayer. Lou basically says, clearly you can't come to Pasadena. You've locked onto something. Stick with it. <laughs> like, that was kind of... What ends up happening is we go to Mott Auditorium, which was where the gatherings were. Lou lived right across the street from it. We go to Mott Auditorium, and when I go to stand on the campus and I actually see Mott Auditorium, there's actually a picture of a man's face. At the time, I didn't know who the man was, and I went into such travail, I actually couldn't even, like, read. Like, now when I look at the picture of it, I don't know if they have it there on the computer, but when I look at the picture of it, now it's like, it says John Armand. Like, there's information, but what happened to me was, when I saw the man's face, I went into such travail, I basically couldn't even see at that point. My eyes were all, you know, a blur with tears, and Lou just kept saying, do you know John Armott? Do you have history with John Armott? I have no idea. what he, I'm thinking he's saying John Armott, the guy with the Toronto Airport vineyard outpouring. I have no idea what's going on. I'm utterly confused. Therese and him are like, oh, this is like a window into your future and your destiny, whatever, God's moving. Therese pulls out a disposable camera, takes a picture. We, all, we didn't all have the iPhones back then. A disposable camera... She snaps a picture of this. It's like, I mean, the picture's like hilarious. I'm like a, a, a wretched mess and lose like just happy. I still have no idea what's happening at all. So this particular book, <laughs> this particular book, I come back to um, Bradford and I'm sitting with my friend in a coffee shop and I have a history book and she has a history book that we're going through. She has this one. This one is open to a chapter and a page that we hadn't gotten to yet. As she's sitting there on the other side with the t of the table, um, I, I hadn't even told her about what happened to me in California. Like, why would I tell anybody that I go into crazy travail when I see a man's face? That's just weird. I, like, I just... <laughs> she has her book open, and when I glance on her page, I see the name on the page, John R. Mott. And when I see the name John R. Mott, I'm like, John R. Mott? Why is he in a Bradford book? She's like... John Arnott? You know, she thought it was the same guy I did. She's like, and I'm like, no, John Armott. She's like, she hadn't made it there yet either. She's like, who's John Armott? I take the book, and what I find is, is that the man that I saw in California, the man's face, and he had a base of operations in California, ultimately what ended up happening was, is he came to Bradford, Massachusetts. He came to the congregational church where the first board of commissioners for foreign missions was founded. He came there a hundred years after the board was formed and Adoniram Judson was sent and ultimately, why he came there is he knew that there was a well there. He knew that there was a well for foreign missions. But the speech in this book, ultimately what he says, is that the first band of student missionaries had dreams. They had dreams to see the world evangelized, dreams that were not realized in their generation. And he said, and if you want to know what the call of God is upon our generation, our call is to pick up their dreams and to see those dreams fulfilled in our generation. And I remember when I was reading his speech, I thought, this is it. 
Our call is simply to, to fulfill the dreams of our forefathers. Our call is to pick up these dreams and to see them fulfilled in our generation. And so I have this crazy thing with the John Armott, and I'm thinking, okay, God, clearly you are up to something. I then go to Redding, California, and while I'm in Redding, California, this prophet calls me out. And ultimately, what he says to me when he looks at me, the first thing he says is he said, you have eyes for the nations of the earth. And he said, in the place where your feet, feet stand is the crossroads for revival to the nations of the earth. He looked at me and he said, have you ever heard of a place called Bradford College? I'm like, uh, <laughs> prayer walk it every week. I didn't say that. I just shook my head like, yeah, yeah, I've heard of that. <laughs> he goes on to say, he said, the nations of the earth are not coming to Boston for a degree. The nations of the earth are coming to Boston for the fire of God. He begins to prophesy about how that specific campus, Bradford College, is the crossroads for revival to the nations of the earth. So you know what happens is this guy gives me this crazy word about Bradford, and I'm thinking, God, you really, like your eyes are upon this. There's something that you are doing and something that you are orchestrating. So what ends up happening is the following year, Lou asks me to start a house of prayer here in Boston, specifically to pray for the college campuses. I say no. I'm like, no, I'm praying over the abandoned college campus. I, I, I know my deal, and I'm sticking with my deal. <laughs> um, that's what I'm going after. So I say no to him. And you know what's funny is Daryl and I actually, at that point in time, we were helping my mother. We had planted a church with her that was all compassion-based. It was all former addicts, for, former prostitutes, like all the street people of Haverhill. And so the thought of college campuses and uh, Ivy Leagues, all of those things, I was like, no, I feel called to the poor and the destitute, not the wealthy and the educated. The Lord did a sovereign work in my heart of recognizing poverty of spirit is poverty of spirit, regardless of your social class. Um, And so understanding that he sees them all the same, whether you're homeless and addicted or whether you have a degree and great wealth, if you're without Christ, you're wretched and you're barren and you're blind. And so God did a sovereign work in my heart, but basically Lou asked two, maybe three times more. And finally, I was just like, okay, he's clearly, I mean, I had learned to trust Lou's leadership in my life. And so I'm like, he clearly feels strongly about this. I decide to do a three-day water fast. I lock myself in my parents' basement. And I'm basically like, if God, if you speak to me a word, I'm going to do this, even though I don't want to go to Boston. (laughs) I loved what I was doing. I loved what I had locked onto there. But I I said to the Lord, if you speak a word to me, I'll do this without understanding. During my three-day water fast, the only thing God spoke to me was to go back to the word from Redding, California, that he had spoken to me in Redding. And I remember thinking, I like that word. It's all about Bradford. It's all about what you're going to do through Bradford, being the crossroads for revival, all of these things. So I remember thinking, I'll go back to that word. It's going to be confirmation that I need to stick with the campus. I go back to that word. It's the very, very first time that I hear him say, as you see an awakening on the college campuses of Boston, it will be a catalyst for the student volunteer missions movement that you've seen in your spirit. First time. Isn't that crazy with the prophetic? On how like we lock on to what's familiar and we know, and then the parts that we don't understand, we just kind of like, I don't, I don't know what you're saying. It's almost like it's Velcro. It was the first time I heard him say, as you see an awakening on the college campuses of Boston, it'll be a catalyst for the student volunteer missions movement. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh, huh, it's 
Boston. <laughs> we got to start there. And that's actually where the student volunteer missions are coming from. Student, okay, keyword. I mean, all of a sudden it's, and you know, it's interesting is uh, my friend who you guys are familiar with, Axe, it's who we've just sent Liam through. Uh, he was Lou Engel's assistant for many years, which was Brian Kim. When Lou was trying to convince me to start the House of Prayer here, whenever I would talk to Brian, I'm like, Brian, you know what I'm about. I'm about this campus, and God's called me to pray for it, to be preserved. He would say to me over and over again, Bethany, I believe you've heard from God, but that, that word is 10 years out. It, you got 10 years before you start seeing that campus move in that direction. He's like, God has something for you today. And so you know what? He was exactly right because it was 2006 when he said that is 10 years out. And in 2016, exactly 10 years later, we had our first gathering on the college campus that I'd been praying for all of those years. Exactly 10 years we began to see. But, you know, I'm just going to give you a little understanding into even how all of that was orchestrated. Basically, in 2006, once I... Um, realized that Boston is really on the Lord's heart, and that's kind of where I needed to begin. I was actually on my way to go preach at a gathering, and I didn't actually know what I was going to preach on. That's kind of my style, sadly, but I didn't, I didn't really know what I was going to preach on, and as I was going out the door, I felt like the Holy Spirit prompted me to go grab a book that was on my desk, and the name of the book um, is called The Ten Greatest Revivals in History. So I knew that I would probably just take an excerpt out of it in a, in a verse, and that would be my message. So when I went to go grab the book on my desk, as soon as my hand was laid on this book, which is the 10 Greatest Revivals in History, I heard, and it's the only time I've heard the audible voice of God, thundering. But when I laid my hand on that book, I heard the Lord say, the greatest revival in the history of man is within the womb of this generation. And the under, it was the first time I heard that, that language of understanding that you can read all of the revivals of old. We can stand in awe of what God did in the past, but what we are going to see him accomplish and do in our generation is a culmination of all of those movements. It's a culmination of all of those things. And it shook me to my very core. And I know for me, that was one of those defining moments of that is what God has called me to labor for, is to see the great revival in the history of man. Some of you are like, that's kind of grandiose language. Do you know what that ultimately is? That's scripture fulfilled when Habakkuk says that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. It's having a perspective for the glory of God in the nations of the earth that every tribe, every tongue, every people group do you realize all throughout scripture we find this language that from the ends of the earth we will hear this song, glory to the righteous one. That from the ends of the earth that there will be worship day and night before his throne. And so anything less than a vision for God's glory in the nations of the earth, we've not yet captured his heart and his vision. So I get rocked, you know, when the Lord speaks this word to me. And then in 2006, we start the house of prayer. And I'm just going to say to you, 2006 is when we planted. Can I just say to you, when you're following God's voice, sometimes it's not, it, it, it's not clear and it's not concise. It's just a matter of obedience. For sake of time, I have to like fly you through a lot. But 2006, when we did the first 40 days, we did 40 days of day and night worship and prayer. There was nothing glamorous or lovely about it. 
It was difficult. It was hard. It was cold. We were in a church that had like no heat. It, there, there were so many challenges. And I can remember during those 40 days, we did 24-7 worship and prayer. The evening meetings were open to the public, which the Church of Boston really gathered. But I can remember Lou would stand up every single night and he'd be like, we're doing these 40 days to launch the house of prayer. And I remember every time he'd say that, I'd think, what does that mean? <laughs> like, what exactly am I? And he would say, do you have any like locations that you, and I'm like, locations? I don't have any money. I just left my job. Like, uh, crazy. And I can remember during those 40 days, it was hard and it was difficult. That whole team, because they have a J-hop in D.C., that whole team was going to go back April 9th. And I was going to be left. And so Lou would stand up and be like, if there's anybody that wants to stay in Boston and join the team, I'm thinking in my head, who would want to do that? I don't even have a place to put them. Like, I don't have a place to sleep them. So thankfully, three young people were like, I'll stay and help. I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I am responsible to feed these people, to help these people, to make sure they are safe in this big, bad city. <laughs> We had no place to go. We literally used the MIT dorms and slept in the MIT dorms. And you want to talk about something? House of Prayer is not a building, right? It's, we are the House of Prayer. We literally prayer walked Harvard three times a day. We would go morning, afternoon, and evening believing for the fulfillment of God's word upon that campus and the campuses of the Northeast. We did that. I can remember the team being like, so where do we go after the MIT dorms? I have no idea. I have no complete. Can I just say to you, clueless. Like if you think that in order to start something or do something that you have to have great strategy and vision and, and all mapped out, I wish I could say I was that type of leader. It'd probably be way easier for our team to work with me. Instead, I'm like, I have a, a vague vision <laughs> and I know what we're moving towards. If you want to fill in the blanks, that's great. <laughs> it was awful. I'm just going to say that to you. It was awful. It was terrible. The first place I rented, they wanted 4,000. I remember looking at like renting places and thinking, I have no provable income. I'm a missionary right now. <laughs> uh, $4,000. I wish I could walk you through the process of the houses and real estate and our crazy stories. I talked her down to 3,900. I guess when I was 26 years old or however old I was at that time, I guess I thought the $100 difference was how I was going to feed my team. I don't know what I thought. So I moved into this house. We prayed there crazy stories of just knowing that we needed the integrity of bringing a, being a praying community. There were people within the community that while we were Esther fasting, they'd be like making pancakes while we were like fasting and puking our brains out. Did not want to do prayer sets. We would joke and say, instead they thought it was like the Justice House of Parties, <laughs> like meaning they're just here for a good time in Cambridge. I had to make some of the most difficult decisions as a leader. Very, I did it all in love, walked them through sometimes six months of communication to make sure it was all understood and mutually agreeable. But let me just say this to you. At one point, when, when a couple moved out of the house that we were in, they literally are the people that brought all of the furnishings. Like, when I say furnishings, I mean the couch and the table and the pots and the pans and the cups. They, they were part of our team and they brought everything. And so when they were transitioning out, one of the team members was like, Bethany, what are we going to sit on? <laughs> I'm like, I don't exactly know. I just know that I had to obey God. <laughs> the day they're moving, and we helped them. We're all, we're all still great friends. <laughs> we were helping them move. I'm there with boxes, bringing out all the belongings and coming back to an empty house. And I'm thinking, I have no idea how to furnish this place for this team that I have. I get a phone call 
from my mother who oversees a compassion ministry. And she says, there's a massive, massive truckload. Somebody wants to donate basically household items. We have no idea what it is. They don't understand we work with the homeless. They don't, we don't, they don't have houses. <laughs> so she said, but it has to move. This, this organization said it just needs to be moved by today. And I said, I'll take it, whatever it is. I had no idea what was on the truckload. But can I just tell you, it was kitchen tables. It was Pottery Barn rugs. It was everything that we needed for our entire house that was supernaturally provided. Yeah. The end, the end of that year, when our lease was up, to be honest with you, I, I was done having a team. <laughs> like between all of the dynamics of leading people and trying to get people to pray when clearly they didn't want to. <laughs> All of that, I was like, I know, the only thing I know is I'm called to be an intercessor in this city. That's the only thing I have clarity on. So I wanted to disband my team and just go to like a little one-bedroom apartment. That was like my plan. And side note, because finances were so tight, my mother's food pantry, which is like feeds the homeless, I literally just, what she had a huge shipment of... Um, Walnut date oatmeal one time. So I literally just took boxes and boxes of walnut date oatmeal. And by the time I finished it, it was like all expired, like by three and four months. But literally I lived off of, when I did eat, I ate the oatmeal. Like that's all I literally ate for like a year. But at the end of that year, it's really the last thing I wanted to do was to deal with the dynamics of teams and all of those things. And so I had come to a decision in my heart that... Basically, I was going to disband the team and downsize, and I get a phone call from this woman, and ultimately, she's the woman that financed the call, she financed the first call, all of those things, and she asks me, she's like, what do you see the hand of God, like, do you, what, for the next season, and I actually told her I want to go to a one-bedroom apartment, I explained everything, and she said, is there anything that you see, like, maybe God highlighting, and I told her, I said, well, that's interesting, I said, my landlord is a realtor. She keeps calling me about this historic building that's being got renovated, and she thinks it would be perfect for a prayer room on the first floor and staff housing upstairs. And I said, but it's far too big, and I'm not interested. And, and then she said, has anything else happened with this house? And I said, well, my former realtor that got me into my present house, he's been calling me about the same place. So long story short, I was not interested in seeing the place or even wanting to move into such a large place. I call... Um, my no, I actually found a Craigslist listing for a, it said a it said a two bedroom apartment. And when I called about it, on the other end was my former realtor, and I said, "Hey, I'm calling about 135 Western Avenue. It says that it's a two bedroom apartment." He laughs out loud. He's like, "Do you know who you're talking to?" And I won't say his name, <laughs> but and I said, "No, I don't." He said, "It's so and so." He said, "I've been trying to reach you about that very property." He said, "You've told me multiple times you don't want to see that." And I'm like, no, I want a two-bedroom. I don't want a two-family house. I just want a two-bedroom. He's like, that is the two-family house. It's the first floor. So then at that point, I realized, I'm like, maybe I'll just go see it. This individual, this woman, ended up giving us the 14000 for the first, last, and security, realtor fee, all the things. And she ended up securing the whole first year in paying the rent. And I can remember when she was committing that to me, I still didn't say yes. I still wasn't like, yeah, I'll sign the lease. My uncle ended up sending me to Europe for like three weeks. I ended up like France, Switzerland, like all these places. And I ended up in Her um, Herrenhut, Germany. 
And while I was in Heron Hub Journey, just praying about this Moravian movement and what I knew God had called us to raise up, the, what I asked the Lord is I said, while I'm here on this trip, would you confirm to me if this house is truly the next steps for us? And I go to, I'm in France, and while I'm in France, there's this structure that looks exactly like J-Hub. Of course, everything in France does. It's like the, that Greek revival structure. But my mother says to me, she's like, what is that building? It looks just like that house on 135 Western that you're praying about. And she looks at the sign, and it's called the Palace of Justice. Uh, it was the funniest. So we, I ended up calling this donor from Europe and basically said, I think this is what the Lord's calling us to so we ended up making our transition and moving into 135 Western Avenue. And so basically, once we moved in, this is kind of where it ties back into Bradford. Once we moved in, I ended up having a dream probably like the first week we were in the house. And the dream that I had is that the Lord had told me in the dream that basically for all of the new interns that come to J-Hop, that I need to give them vision and perspective of what this is unto. And in the dream, I knew that I was supposed to be bringing them to the Bradford College campus. Mind you, it's still vacant. This was as of 2007. It was still vacant. So in my dream, I'm bringing all of our new interns to the Bradford College campus to give them vision and context. And so I tell them all about the history of the campus. I tell them all of these details. And when we get to the campus, it's the opening day for a Christian college. And so everybody in my dream is like, wait one second, I thought you said that there would, you know, be another student volunteer missions movement, like, what's this college? And I, in my dream, I said to the, the young adults that were with me, I said, God is preserving this until the fullness of time. He's keeping it until the fullness of time so it can be stewarded for his purposes. So I wake up from the dream. I end up going to IHOP and meeting with some of the leaders there about the campus. And I'm like, someone needs to buy the campus. Somebody in the meeting says, Bethany, you're, it's your dream. It's your dream. There's going to be a Christian college that's gifted, there's going to be like a multimillionaire that's going to gift it to a Christian college, and it will be preserved until the fullness of time for this next student volunteer missions movement that you've seen in your spirit. I come back that week, and they basically say that they're going to start auctioning off all of the buildings for this campus. And um, I mean, what can I do? I can't buy a building. I can't, I've already asked everybody I know to buy it. So basically all that's going to happen is it's now going to be auctioned. So I end up getting a phone call the day before the auction takes place. A multimillionaire basically approached a Christian college who used to be in Rhode Island and said, we want to purchase this campus and gift it to you. And so it was gifted to this Christian college. And so what ends up happening is, and so I'm kind of like answered prayer. I did my job. I prayed over the campus. It was suited to, you know, for God's purposes. It'll be now preserved until the fullness of time. So we do one of our first 110 gatherings at the First Baptist Church here in Cambridge, and I'm sharing the story. And basically what I'm saying is, is if all of these words, like if God gives me a word that a Christian college is going to inhabit the college so it, it can be preserved until the fullness of time, if all of these words about John R. Mark, if all of these things are taking place, surely they are unto something. Like you don't see that kind of a, and you know, I'll, ba I'll back up to the point. Here's another, and I... It would take days to recount all of this. But when we were first in the 135 Western Avenue house, and I basically was, it was one of my fleeces before the Lord. Um, at that time, Brian hadn't started Acts yet. So I went online and I was going to buy the John Armott, this is the name of the book, John Armott, The Evangelization of the World in This Generation. And I definitely wanted more books about um, the student volunteer missions movement and John Armott and things like that. 
So I was going to order the book for myself, and I felt really strongly, you know what, I'm not going to provide this for myself. I'm actually going to order it, and I'm going to send it to my friend Brian just as seed for what God's called him to do. And I asked the Lord this. I said, God, if this is truly what you've called me to do, would you provide a book for me? Would you just make that a provision from you so I'm not providing it for myself? So I go on Amazon, I order the book, and it's just more like one of those quiet prayers. Would you provide a book for me? I go to the post office that day <laughs> to go check my P.O. box for the house of prayer. And um, when I went to the post office box, there was a package from Lou and Trez Ingle. And in my post office box, the very day that I said, would you provide a book for me, is the students in the modern missionary crusade. It's the, the entire convention of all of the speeches that were given at that first convention there in Nashville. And so me asking the Lord, would you provide a book and confirm if this is what you've called me to do? Inside, uh, Lou wrote, Dear Bethany, I believe you will be used to dig the wells of John Armott. May the Ivy League schools be for the healing of the nations. Our love and our prayers are with you always. Lou and Engel, September 2007. And, you know, I just, he referenced the Ivy League universities being for the healing of the nations. And like I had shared during that first 40 days, it was so difficult and so painful. I asked the Lord one day, I said, God, I know you've spoken to me so clearly about what you've called me to do here, but would you speak to me one more time? Would you somehow speak? And that night, one of the gentlemen that helps lead um, Lou's organization, he stood up and he said, I had a dream last night. <laughs> And in his dream, he said that he saw masses of young people. And he said the masses of young people had welts on the temples of their head, like almost like a disease or a growth. And he said that when he saw the welts on the temples of their head, he asked the Lord in the dream, he said, God, what are those welts? What are those things on their head? And he said he heard the voice of God say, it's poison ivy on the mind of a generation. The Ivy League universities were intended to be the leaves of healing for the nations of the earth. And instead, they've poisoned the mind of a generation. But once again, I will cause my light and glory to go from the ends, to the ends of the earth from the Ivy Leagues. And I remember when he spoke that word during the 40 days, I thought, you've done it. You've given me vision. You've given me clarity of your intended purpose. It always goes back to your intended purpose and when we were in a really difficult transition with the house of prayer and just hardship, difficulty, all of those things, I can remember one time a good friend of mine saying, Bethany, you are completely released. Like organizationally, relationally, like Lou understands, like Boston is like no other. You could easily just kind of put this down and say, my time is up. And at that point in time, there was other opportunities that I could have taken. And I remember I said to that individual, I said, if God never speaks another word to me again, he has spoken to me too clearly to ever turn around. And I really made it my vow at that point in time of God has spoken to me. And I want to encourage us here today, I'm going to close us out on this point. I mean, there are so many more stories and testimonies. And, to, and when I say stories and testimonies, that individual that financed us, she was sending $14,000 a month to finance the entirety of the House of Prayer. She was like our one single donor who carried the entire ministry. She's also the woman that when my son was 
you know, four or five months old, and how many of you guys know when you have a newborn, you're sleep-deprived, and you're nursing, and you're hormonal, and you're confused and overwhelmed? My husband was working 80 hours a week, and nobody knew, but my secret plea before the Lord was, I can't do this. You either have to raise up somebody else, or I need to pass the baton, but I cannot continue. That it was at that, that point in time, she had come for our ordination, and she met with us, and she told Daryl, she said, what do you get paid at your job? Because whatever you get paid at your job, I'm going to pay you so that Bethany does not have to lead this alone and you can step into the house of prayer full time. We have the most outstanding track record of miracles and provision. And I say that to you to say is none of this has to do with the ingenuity, the ideas, the resources of man. It's so far beyond any one individual. Can I just say to you, if it had to do with my leadership ability or my visionary strength, we would have crumbled after the first 40 days because we were homeless and penniless. And, but can I just say something to you? There's a place where you lock on to God's vision and you simply trust and obey him. And can I say to you that sometimes our strengths and our abilities, they actually get in the way because somehow we think we can or we will bring it to pass. And can I say something to you? There is a great place of wealth in the place of dependency, of saying, I don't have what I need of, what I have need of. I cannot possibly produce this in and of myself, but I simply want to love you and obey you. Can I tell you the success of what we do as Hilltop Church, or even at that little house of prayer, has nothing to do with what you can see with your physical eyes. It has everything to do with people that are partnering with the heart of God. In, De in Deuteronomy where it says that the eye of the Lord searches all of the earth to find a heart that is completely his. He is looking for a heart that is perfectly towards him. And do you know the greatest wealth, the greatest value we have in this earth of having a heart that is holy after him with no strings attached, that it's not about my results, it's not about my success, it's not about the outcome, it's simply about I am here for you and you alone and whatever you want to add, whatever you want to take away. I just want to encourage you, if you're part of Hilltop, you need to know not only is this our testimony and our history, but ultimately it's our inheritance in the future as well. That we are at the beginning of the beginning. And just like I said at the beginning of this testimony, that we have not seen those prophetic promises come to pass. We have not seen the intended purpose of New England that glory would be released to the nations of the earth. We have not seen the fulfillment of the nations of the earth coming to receive the fire of God. We've seen it in part and we've seen it in portions. But we are just at the beginning of the beginning. And so I want to encourage you, number one, get vision for what God wants to do in this geographical location. Beyond the restaurants that you can go eat at, beyond all the cultural things that you can do, get a vision for this city that is God's heart and what he desires to release from this place. And all of a sudden, you'll have great purpose. Great purpose in the season of time that you're here. And if you're someone that this Boston is not home for you, that Hilltop is not home for you, I'm going to say to you today that there is a purpose for your life that is far greater, far greater than your paycheck, far greater than the car you drive, far greater than the house that you can build, but it's unto eternal value. And you're not truly living 
unless you've grabbed a hold of the vision of God's heart for your life. And so I want to encourage you today, begin to seek what is his purpose. And I'm not saying it has to look like mine. Yours could be to finance missionaries in the nations of the earth, and that is glorious. Yours could be to invent something. Do not compare your calling or what God has called you to do with any other individual. But do it with sincerity and fullness of heart, wholeheartedness before him. Lord, I thank you, Father, for the community of people that's gathered here today. God, I thank you, Father, for the way you have led us. God, I thank you, Father, that ultimately your eye is truly upon Boston. And Lord, I just say to you, Lord, even once again, that even if you never speak another word to me again, God, you have spoken too clearly for me to ever turn aside from what it is you've called us to labor for. And so, God, I thank you, Father, that as Governor Winthrop was aboard the Arabella, and God, as he truly declared that Boston would be a city set upon a hill and a light to all nations, God, I thank you that the vision that he saw in his spirit, Lord, we, Lord, as your sons and daughters, God, we cry out, fulfill that vision in our generation. God, we ask, Lord, that as Jonathan Edwards, God, saw an extraordinary move of prayer that would bring the gospel to the nations of the earth. God, we say, fulfill that in our generation. God, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you for your provision. And God, we ask, God, that we truly would be faithful stewards of that which you've entrusted to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Put your hands together one more time for my wife. I did good, yeah? I did good, yeah? Yeah? Did really good. I'm honestly always amazed that she said yes, Um, but (laughs) thank you, honey, for reminding us of our story. It's important. Uh, to recap and to rethink and reminisce about your story. And um, that's what we're doing. You may think, um, maybe you're here for the first time and you're like, Where, what, what is this? This, you know, what are they doing? What is she speaking about? These revivalists of old, these college camps. We're just reminding ourselves of our story to encourage us in the story that we have ahead of us. And so, We love you, Hilltop Church. Listen, if you're new here, you should have received a brochure. And in that brochure, there's what was called a connect card. If you're looking to get connected to this church, I would encourage you to fill up that connect card and pass it right into the info center where you will get a pretty cool gift. I'd say even if you don't like us, fill up the connect card because it's a cool.